And now, broadcasting from a two-person hot tub, high atop the Butterfield Park water tower, it's the E-Town Lowdown, created by Robbie and Rick. And now, your handsome hosts, PK and Rick. Welcome to another special edition of the E-Town Lowdown, COVID-19 pandemic. Now more than ever, we're asking the community of Elmhurst to please fill out your U.S. 2020 census. It's quick, safe, and easy, and you can do it online at my2020census.gov. Thank you. We're recording this on Wednesday, April 15th, 2020, and my guest today is Dr. John DeVries, the owner and operator of the DeVries Animal Hospital at 528 South Spring in Elmhurst. How are you, Dr. DeVries? Uh, Very good, thank you. Um, I'm sure things are a little, little different right now uh, in terms of the way the hospital is, is operating. But I want to ask you a couple of questions, background about the hospital first of all. So when did you, fo- um, when was it founded? Yeah, we started in uh, 1987. Um, graduate of York High School, grew up in Elmhurst. My wife and I both grew up in Elmhurst. And uh, after I graduated from vet school, worked up in the North Shore area for uh, three years, and then uh, looking for a place to open up. And uh, doors were open and led me to Elmhurst. And we started at 475 Spring in 1987, and then uh, 1998 moved over to 528, right across from the 7-Eleven, and have been there since and have really enjoyed it. Local success story. We love it when. Uh folks who grow up here end up uh, staying here and, and being successful. So that's a great story. Tell us a little bit about, you know, just in general, the services that uh, DeVries Animal Hospital offers. Yeah, so we're a small animal practice uh, catering. Uh, we do mostly dogs and cats, uh, really exclusively dogs and cats. Uh, and, uh, you know, focus on service. So we found that that's kind of our niche, uh, provide good service. And uh, we make relationships, we build relationships with clients, so uh, there's a lot that goes into it. So obviously we care for pets and we, we have the, the current medicine and best quality, but really our focus is on, on building relationships and building a trust with uh, with clients and the bond. And that's really uh, done very well for us. We've really enjoyed that. Uh, it's been successful. It's, uh, it's really interesting now as we're into our 33rd year, we're starting to see the second generation, people that come to us and say, well, my folks uh, you know, brought our dog, their dog to you. And so uh, it's been really fun to meet the next generation. Can you kind of give us an idea of, A, how many veterinarians uh, are at the hospital and how many employees total? Yeah, so we have a total of 15 employees. Uh, we have uh, four veterinarians. We usually have uh, one and a half. It's one to two veterinarians on, and some days we have two, some days we have one, and then we always have five staff members and assisting them, usually two at the front desk, uh, handling customer service, and then uh, technicians and assistants handling the animals. And so uh, yeah, it's a good group. we got a lot of stability. Uh, I have an office manager that's been with me for 31 years, and, uh, you know, it's a stable work environment. It's good work culture. Uh, people enjoy it. We respect each other, and uh, and it's it's been good. I enjoy it. So I know you're you're open uh, during the pandemic. Can can you give us an idea of how you're operating differently and how you're protecting your employees and your your pet owner customers from the virus? Yeah, yeah. So we're really um, working on the principle that we don't want any strangers in the building. So uh, only pets are allowed in the building. So uh, we we've kind of changed our protocol. The clients call us and make an appointment, and then we try and get some information ahead of time. One of those questions we ask is: Is there anybody sick in the house? Um, if there is, then we take extra precautions with PPE. Um, pets um, don't get the virus, but there's been two cases where they think they were able to isolate it from a dog. Only this dog lived in a home that had a lot of the virus. There were sick people in the home. So we're just trying to be cautious and take precautions. And then when people uh, come up, to uh, when they drive up, they call us from the car. And uh, 
we meet them at the door. We have an eight to six foot box marked out in front of the door. We ask people not to step inside the box and uh, they hand off their pets to us. And then they come, the pets come in the building and then the owner returns to the car. And then we do most things by phone. So uh, uh, we, we call them and we get history and I'll talk to them as I'm examining their animals. So it's just like if they were there, but they're not there. Um, sometimes I talk to them through the window. It's always nice to have a visual and a lot of clients, of course, I know and I've known for many years. And so we spend a little time catching up, but, uh, pets have been very good about it. Um, occasionally we'll get one that's kind of stressed and they're a little difficult to handle. And then without the owners there, it makes it a little harder, but, uh, we've been able to manage to get by. And so again, we want to be safe. Um, so uh, all the staff, they have instructions. Uh, we're very cautious about where everybody goes. We're trying to keep everybody safe in the hospital. They wear masks, especially when they go out to the, uh, to the clients and gloves. Um, trying to minimize any risk and contact. So we're pretty comfortable with the way we're operating, but it's definitely um, different. It, it, uh, you mentioned that it appears that you know, dogs and cats can't get the, um, the disease, um, but they might be able to carry it. On, and where would they carry it? In, in their body or on their body? No, on their body, really. So uh, the, the, the two dogs, and this is two dogs out of the whole world, so it keeps that in perspective. Um, and this was in Hong Kong, and so even the methodology is, is not quite understood what they really did, but they were able to culture it from the, from the nose, from the mouth, from the oral cavity. Um, so they, uh, you know, could they act as a fulmite? In other words, if, if somebody who had the virus sneezed on the dog and they brought the dog and we touched it, could we get it that way? It's a possibility. It'd be pretty remote, but that's kind of why we ask them questions about what's the house situation like. Um, animals, dogs, and cats cannot get sick with the virus, so if they're exposed to it, they don't get it. They have no clinical signs. Um, obviously, many people have heard about the cases of the tigers in the Bronx Zoo. Um, they actually got the disease. Um, it's unclear whether they got it from the, uh, an animal zookeeper or where it came from. Um, good, good news is uh, tigers and cats, uh, domestic cats, are separate species, so don't really expect that cats are going to be exposed or be able to, to carry this disease at all. But um, we're always cautious about could an animal be carrying the virus just on the hair. And so uh, lots of careful caution, lots of hand washing. We, uh, we've used more soap than we ever have, I think. I bet. Do you have any words of advice for the folks that I see out in, in droves uh, walking their dogs more so than ever? In terms of the the dogs um, maybe having it on their their fur and transmitting it to another dog, or um, should should folks avoid petting other people's dogs? Yeah, I think that would be really, really, very remote. Um, you know, the chance that a dog could transfer to another dog. Um, I think caution, good hygiene. If you're petting another dog, you should go home and wash your hands anyway, regardless. But especially now, that would be the prudent thing to do. Um, you know, dogs are probably the beneficiary of this pandemic. I've seen more dogs out walking and, and, and me included, you know, we're, we're looking for something to do, we're looking for something to do outside. So it's usually, Hey, let's go walk the dog and the dogs are loving it. Um, but you want to obviously keep distance. And so when we walk, whenever we're out walking, we try to avoid being on the same side of a street, you know, sidewalks aren't really wide enough. So we'll cross over, step into the street and you know, that six foot rule is, is pretty important. So based on what you've, you've just said, is it safe to assume that, uh, a dog wearing a mask provides no protection for the dog nor anyone else. <laughs> I think that's a pretty safe bet. <laughs> okay. And is it? And as long as we're on that, is it true a dog's mouth is cleaner than a human's? And and I don't know what that means, 
Uh, um, yes and no. I mean, they have their own organisms. Overall, somebody says that the dog kisses them or licks them. I, I'm not too worried about it. There's one organism that can be pretty nasty, um, mostly an issue for really immunocompromised people, you know, that uh, that might be prone to any kind of infection. But, uh, you know, overall, they're, they're pretty clean. I mean, I wouldn't I wouldn't encourage it. Um, they do have dental disease often, so we'll see bacterial infections around there. But um, but overall, the dog's mouth is, is, is not too bad. So, you know, throughout your career, have you ever dealt with an animal pandemic? Well, actually, we, we did. In 2015, we had the dog influenza, and it's, it's ironic in how much it mimics um, this pandemic. So the dog influenza came out in April 2015. Chicago was the epicenter, and it just started with a couple of veterans saying, you know, we're seeing these really nasty respiratory infections, and some of them are going into pneumonia. Um, and then we started to see how contagious it was. And these dogs were shedding the virus two days before they showed clinical signs. Now, doesn't that sound familiar? Right. Um, and so it became highly contagious. And really, we started to see outbreaks for kennels and boarding facilities. And, I mean, there were kennels that had to shut down and depopulate because they were just infected all over. And they had to really do a deep clean. But because they show, they can shred it before the show signs made it very contagious. And, um, you know, these dogs were really sick. Uh, fatality rate was about 3%. Um, we didn't have any fatalities, but we treated a lot of dogs. And so it was really a challenge trying to have the sick dogs come in and treat them and keep healthy dogs apart. And so we were, we were lucky. We did things right. We had no cross-contamination. And then when a vaccine came out, that was, that was the godsend. And so, boy, that really has made a difference. Um, we had another little outbreak later in 2015 and really haven't seen it here. It's made its way around the country. And as the virus comes in different areas, that's when, when pets start getting vaccinated against it because uh, people see how, how bad it was. But it's just very ironic. And it was an H3N2 virus. So, um, you know, it just was identified. They came up with a test for it. They came up with a vaccine for it. Fortunately, in probably a much quicker time frame than the human side. We had a vaccine, I think, by October, November. So six, wow. eight months later, we had a vaccine available. I'm guessing that um, because you've you've had to study various species, you may have a deeper biological knowledge than than a lot of MDs. And so I'm I'm going to ask you an unfair question: Do you have any thoughts on on when you we might expect a vaccine? Um, is is it going to be years in your yeah, opinion? And I know it's, I'm not holding you to this, and nor will anybody else. You know, that's a good question, Rich, and I think that, uh, you know, I'd, I'd probably step outside my knowledge if I, if I gave a date, but obviously on the human side, it takes much longer to bring vaccines to, to market, um, you know, dealing with, with safety and, of course, efficacy. You know, if you vaccinate somebody, they'd like to know that they're protected, um, and safety, of course, above all, do no harm, and so, but I think uh, hopefully they're really going to make every effort to push this along as fast as they can, because that's going to be part of the key is getting back to normal, is getting a vaccine. The other part of it is, and I'm really hoping that this is going to happen soon, is to be able to test, test for exposure and, of course, wider testing for, for testing if you have the disease. Um, you know, I know I speak for myself. If I knew I'd been exposed to it, and I may very well have been, I'd be a little more confident in going out and rejoining the world than, than if I was totally unexposed. And it's really just a matter of when I'm going to get it, not if I get it. So um, that antibody test is going to be key. Um, and there's a lot of unknowns about that, too, of course. Uh, if you have an antibody, does, are you protected? How long are you protected? A lot of unknowns, but just to have the knowledge that you might have some antibodies would, would make a big difference. I, uh, you know, I always reach out to uh, some of our f fans or fanatics, as I like to call them, asking for questions. And I, I have a couple that, um, you know, I don't, I don't know what, how you feel about them, but the, the first one is, do you think pets sense that something's different when all these folks are now 
staying home all day long? Oh yeah. <laughs> I sometimes wonder what they think and I'm sometimes I'm wondering if they're thinking, Will you just go back to work? I gotta sleep. <laughs> <laughs> and the the follow up to that is do you think that some of those pets, if they're used to their owners being home for a month and a half or two months, are gonna have separation anxiety once people go back to work? You know, could could very well. It probably depends a little bit on the personality of the pet, um, you know, but uh, they, they typically adjust pretty well. Um, some of the herding breeds are, are tougher to adjust because they get so used to, you know, their herding instinct is so strong. So when you're home, you know, then they feel like they've done their job. The, the owners haven't left. And then when you leave, they're all stressed out because, you know, the herd has left the coop. And so they, uh, that, that, they're wired. They're just wired that way. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think most dogs will adjust back to real life when, when it happens, but, uh, it's an interesting time. Yeah. One last question. And that is, um, are people, uh, shy about bringing their pets to the animal hospital right now? I think so. I mean, I definitely, we've seen a, a pretty significant drop in business, uh, twofold. One is I think people are just feeling like at this time, you know, with all that's going on, should I get my dog vaccinated, for instance, or, you know, to some of the more elective services? And, and, and I get that. I think that's that's very real. We do encourage people to consider the, keeping at least the rabies current because that's a legal issue and also a liability issue. But, you know, some of the other elective services, it's like, well, you know, should I really be doing that at this time? And then there's the, the financial component. I mean, I, I see a lot of economic impact on this, and I think it will affect uh, moving forward. Um, similar to 2008, I think uh, when there's uncertainty and people are uncertain about their future or their economics, you know, they have to scrutinize everything everything they spend, including the pet. And so, uh, so people are cautious. Um, definitely uh, taking taking a backseat approach to uh, well, when can we go in and should we go in? The uh, website is DeVriesAnimalHospital.com. Our guest has been Dr. John DeVries of DeVries Animal Hospital. Thank you so much, Dr. DeVries. No, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. And now, it's time for another installment of One Ponce a Time with lowdown legend PK and his overly enthused yesteryear expert friend, Elmhurst History Museum director, Dave Oberg. Hey, boys and girls. Did you know that a famed poet, author, and musician Carl Sandburg once called Elmhurst home? That's right. One Ponce a Time, Sandberg moved into our community with his wife Lillian and their three daughters in 1919 and lived here until 1928. Their modest frame house, built by Peter Terode in the late 1850s, stood at 331 South York Street. While living in Elmhurst, Sandberg would, would win the first of his three Pulitzer Prizes. During his time here, he kept busy with a number of important projects that would continue to burnish his reputation. With his typewriter perched on an old orange crate, Sandberg spun poetic verse, children's tales, and even an iconic biography of America's 16th president. By the time he left here for Michigan in 1928, he had established himself as one of America's most important and evocative writers. So let's take a little deeper. Uh, Sandberg was born, he's an Illinoisan by birth. He was born in Galesburg in 1878. And before he comes to Elmhurst, he already has um, quite an interesting uh, career. He had studied at Lombard College. He had served in the 6th Regiment of the Illinois Volunteers during the Spanish-American War. And he'd already published several uh, successful books of verse, including his Chicago poems and Cornhuskers. And also uh, he had a side job working for Chicago Daily News, writing movie reviews, uh, covering labor news, and even had a feature column for a while. 
His nine years in Elmhurst are extremely productive. Uh, he spins stories uh, that he told to his three daughters, Margaret, Janet, and Helga, into his first children's book, The Rutabaga Stories, and follows this with a second children's book in 1923, before turning to some much more serious fare. In 1926, he publishes his critically acclaimed biography of Abraham Lincoln, Lincoln the Prairie Years, and begins a compilation of 280 ballads and folk songs from all over the United States, which he is going to dub the Great American Songbag. Uh, it's uh, still a, a, an incredible work, really. Uh, he continues his passion for poetry as well. He creates four new books of verse while he's living here, Smoke and Steel, Slabs of the Sunburnt West, Selected Poems, and Good Morning America, and also lectures and performs extensively during the span. He's a very talented musician as well. Now, while Sandberg and his family uh, left Elmhurst in 1928, he's going to come back in, the, in 1960, actually, for a very special honor. Elmhurst Junior High School invited our literary giant to the rededication of the school as Carl Sandberg Junior High School in May of 1960. And during his remarks, the inspirational author, poet, and performer shared these words with faculty and students. You may become witnesses of the finest and brightest era known to mankind. The nations over the globe shall have music, music instead of murder. It is possible. That is my hope and prayer for you and the nation. Sandberg died in North Carolina in 1967, and we still have at the Elmhurst History Museum uh, some of his home movies of the family's time in Elmhurst and the typewriter he used while he lived here on display in the sec second floor gallery. A magnificent piece, and though the typewriter is silent, it is a living link to a legendary giant here in Elmhurst. Wow, Dave. Now that's a guy Pete Kruger would like working for him over at the Elmhurst Independent. The E-Town Lowdown, brought to you by the wonderful folks at the Elmhurst Armpit Orchestra, featuring the biggest bass drum in the world at nine feet in diameter. Yes, you heard that right, nine feet in diameter. This has been a special presentation of the E-Town Lowdown. <laughs>